0: You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists.
1: Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky, episode 39. Today, we are going to talk about conservation and wildlife with our special guest, David Mizajewski. He is a naturalist, author, and television presenter with the National Wildlife Federation, He holds a degree in human and natural ecology from Emory University and is an expert on wildlife and our environment. He's dedicated to using his knowledge and unbridled enthusiasm to help others understand and protect the natural world. David regularly appears in the media to promote wildlife conservation. So David, thank you for joining us today.
2: You're welcome. I'm very excited to be here. My other little handle is Nature Geek, so I feel like I'm amongst friends here.
1: (laughs) Yay! That's awesome. Yeah, we are sustainably geeky, which is um, right up your alley then. So tell us a little more about yourself and how you got into this field.
2: Sure. Well, um, you know, I, I kind of feel like I was born this way. <laughs> you know, this, with I've always had a, a draw to to animals and to the natural world um, ever since I was a very young kid. And I think a lot of people who end up working in conservation and the environmental field or with animals, I think, a, I think it's kind of a, kind of a common trait amongst people who kind of find themselves in this in in these careers. But um, at any rate, I uh, was really lucky that I got. To kind of grow up with time spent outside. So my mom and dad, even though they both were kind of city kids and you know moved to the suburbs to have you know have kids of their own and everything, um, they really encouraged me and and my sisters to just go out and play and explore nature. And so we were climbing trees and catching frogs and all that kind of stuff. And I know that for me, it definitely was so key that I had those opportunities as kid as a kid because. kind of tapped into that innate draw and love of nature and I really do think that that kind of set me on the path to you know becoming you know a naturalist and ultimately working for the National Wildlife Federation. So um, yeah I was that kid that would you know bring home snakes in my pocket and come home covered in mud and constantly getting poison ivy driving my parents crazy. I was a junior naturalist at our local nature center and ultimately I um, went to Emory University down in Atlanta and my degree is in political science with human and natural ecology which was kind of what environmental studies you know is today they just didn't call it that back then so um and ultimately i ended up working at the national wildlife federation i i started there about 21 years ago which is kind of insane for me to even think about that and um and you know, here I am today, still, still at National Wildlife Federation, still doing a lot of work in what we call our Garden for Wildlife movement, which I'm sure we're going to talk all about. And uh, but my role basically is to, you know, use media to get people excited about wildlife conservation, to teach them about animals, to inspire them to get involved, making a difference. So it's um, you know, most naturalists work at national parks or nature centers, and they're kind of interpreting the natural world. And I I do that largely through the media, whether it's TV, radio, you know, writing books, blogs, podcasts, you know, all of the above. If there's an opportunity to get out there and talk about wildlife and conservation and the National Wildlife Federation, sign me up.
1: What a fun job, man. <laughs> I want to be you when I grow up. So <laughs> so what was your first um, TV or media appearance? What were you talking about? So,
2: um... Yeah, so I, I guess it's important to to say that I'm, you know, I'm not an actor. i have not, I've never been trained to do anything on camera or anything like that. In fact, I'm actually kind of an introvert. And so it's, it's a big challenge for me to come out and be sort of, you know, in the public eye and all of that. Um, the thing is, for me, is that I, it's easy for me to do when it's about something that I'm passionate about, and that I know a lot about. And you know, animals and nature fall into that category. But if you like, I'm the person. If you're at a party and somebody walks around and puts the phone, in, you know, with a camera on in your face and says, "Say something," I'm like, and I run and hide. You know. But if you ask me to talk about animals, I'm totally fine. So, um, so yeah, I started at the National Wildlife Federation to run our Garden for Wildlife program, which back then we called uh, the Backyard Wildlife Habitat Program. And this is a program all about helping people to, you know, kind of restore habitat right where they live, you know, planting native plants to support birds and bees and butterflies and all that, that, that whole concept, you know, organic gardening, um, reducing lawns and, you know, that kind of thing. And so um, that was in the year 2000. And as a couple years went by, and I had an opportunity to write a how-to book, To teach people how to do this stuff so uh this book came out in 2004 it's called attracting birds butterflies and other backyard wildlife and that actually was my very first uh, national television appearance i got booked on the today show the weekend today show on nbc to do a whole segment based on my book on this idea of gardening for wildlife and you know we set up a bunch of sample gardens in the middle of the the rockefeller plaza right in, in new york city and uh It was pretty awesome. And I thought, well, well, that's cool. That's like a once in a lifetime thing. Right. And a few months later, Animal Planet, the TV network, reached out to the National Wildlife Federation because they had developed an entire TV series concept based on my book and the National Wildlife Federation's program. And so, you know, my job as sort of manager of this program was to whenever we had partnership opportunities like this, you know, to review whatever the, the content was and the idea and the concept to make sure it was accurate and on message and on brand for the National Wildlife Federation. And I just remember reading this whole TV series treatment and I just kept thinking, oh my God, they got it. They nailed it. It's like exactly perfect. And that was before I knew that they based it off of my book. <laughs> so it like it's like, if they got it wrong after that, then you know, there was something wrong with the book. But anyway, that happened. And then literally the next thing I knew, I was standing in front of the TV cameras being a television host. They wanted me to be the host of the show a co-host i had a, a, a another host along with me he was more of a traditional tv host i was kind of the the nature guy host and um, we ended up doing 47 episodes of a series called backyard habitat and it was a makeover series so i don't know you, you probably don't remember back in you know the early 2000s that makeover shows were like the hottest thing ever there was a series called trading spaces if you guys were, okay, so you all, you remember that. So, um, so everybody, this is how TV works, you know, one, one show is a hit and then every other network wants to replicate it and do their own version of it. So Animal Planet, I think, saw this as an opportunity to do a makeover show that kind of was animal related. And so we, um, what we did was we traveled the country and we you know work with people to essentially kind of rip out their yards, their gardens, their landscapes and redo them in a way that follows the principles of the National Wildlife Federation's Garden for Wildlife program and everything that I had in my book and then at the end of every episode we would Recognize that garden space as a National Wildlife Federation certified wildlife habitat, which is kind of an element of our program. It's the recognition portion. So that's how I got into doing the the TV stuff and the media stuff. And um, you know, once you start, once you're a TV host, then all of these other media opportunities start cropping up. Like you know, to do your your promotion of your show, you start getting booked on the morning talk shows. And so uh, I started getting booked on the Martha Stewart Show and did a, you know, multiple appearances over the course of the entire run of her daily talk show. And then um, in 2009, I started doing daily appearances on the, or daily, we, uh, monthly appearances on the Today Show, not daily, I, I wouldn't be able to handle that. Um, and, you know, then it just, it kind of spirals from there. So that's how I got into kind of the nature business and how I ended up with the national wildlife Federation. And then how I got into kind of being a match, naturalist in, in, you know, major media on television and beyond.
1: What a cool story. Um,
2: it's pretty we... awesome. I have to say, I, whenever yeah. I tell my story, I'm like, I have a really cool job.
1: <laughs> like you couldn't have even planned it. You know, no. it's one of those things that you just got to take out and take advantage of the opportunities
2: You know what? I'm glad you said that because, um, you know, I I, I get asked frequently to speak to, you know, student groups, you know, college and university level, even high school often. and, And I always emphasize that, you know, like I didn't plan any of this. I certainly have experienced a good amount of luck. And obviously privileged too, you know, in, in, in just who I am in my life and my career and, you know, that kind of thing that maybe other people w- wouldn't have. But, you know, for me, I just was kind of flying by the seat of my pants. And it was sort of just like an instinct to know, like, this is a good thing. I should do this. And so, like, for some context there, when the opportunity came along to write this, this how-to book on gardening for wildlife, um, you know, just sort of the powers that be at the time at my, at, at my job were like, well, you know, how can you do your job and write a book? And the, the you know, the, the book publisher really wanted to do it. So I ended up agreeing to do it in my free time, you know, kind of as like a freelancer. So I would work all day every day and then I'd go home and I'd work for another five hours writing this book about my job, you know. So, but I didn't do it because I, I did it because I knew it would be a good thing, right? It would be a good thing to have this book out there on the market. It would help people help wildlife. And I knew that it would be really good for the National Wildlife Federation. Did I know it was going to turn into a TV career? No, you know, but I did it. And then this really amazing thing happened. Right. And then once I, again, the TV stuff started happening and the media opportunities started coming in, then that was a whole other new adventure. And, um, so yeah, and here I am 21 years later.
1: That's so cool. Well, before we move on, um, I know you've kind of talked about the National Wildlife Federation, but can you just tell our listeners what they do? I know there's more than just, you know, the the part that you work in. They they have kind of a very broad scope of work. So can you give us a brief outline of that?
2: Sure. Yeah. The National Wildlife Federation is one of the oldest and largest wildlife conservation and education groups um, here in, in the U.S. We do kind of focus our work and our programmatic work largely on the US and North America. That's one of the reasons why I work National Wildlife Federation. It's one of the things that kind of sets us apart from a lot of the other big conservation groups, many of which do focus largely internationally. Um, and so We we've been around for a long time, you know. 1936 was a long time ago, and we the the our name is Federation, and we really truly are a federation. So we're we're a national organization, and we have you know kind of regional offices, but we we have state affiliates in all of the states and, and territories as well, and these are separate. Nonprofit conservation organizations across the gamut. So everything from real traditional like hunting and fishing groups, which is where a lot of the roots of conservation come from, all the way to like super progressive green groups working on climate change and and things like that. And so we, you know, federate together to to focus on our shared concern and love of wildlife in the natural world. And, you know, just by those two examples that I just gave, you can imagine that there's widely disparate views across the political spectrum there, right? But we all know and care about and understand the importance of our natural heritage and wildlife. And by coming together in this federation, um, it gives us a lot of voice and a lot of power. And that's kind of core to who we are as an organization, and we do our work in a whole wide variety of ways, right? So, you know, we're we're doing what a lot of conservation groups are doing, and that's focusing on, you know, policy level, you know, kind of uh, good environmental conservation laws, um, you know, protecting the laws that are on the books like the Endangered Species Act, but also we're doing a lot of work right now on a piece of legislation called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which in a nutshell, is about focusing proactively on conserving species that are declining right now but are not yet endangered. So be like trying to keep species from getting to the point of endangered. And it's it uses existing funding, it has bipartisan support. um, And it's basically going to fund the work of the wildlife state wildlife agencies that know how to do this conservation work. They've got state wildlife action plans, they've identified the species but they just need the funding to do it. So we're really active in, in, in that, just as one example of the kind of work that we do. Um, you know, Some of the work we do is species focused. So in the last five, eight years, we've been doing a lot of work to reintroduce bison back onto their native uh, grassland habitat. We work very closely with tribal partners in order to do that work. Uh, I got to see the very first bison calf born on the Wind River, Eastern Shoshone Reservation in Wyoming, a few years ago, like I didn't see it actually born, but I saw it like that it was the first one that was born there. And like over I think it was 120 years, like so yeah. cool. right? Um, <laughs>
1: it's awesome. We, you know,
2: we're, we're working right now in California to build a highway overpass over the the 101 freeway for the dwindling mountain lion population that's in the Santa Monica mountain ecosystem. There's only, you know, a couple dozen of these cats. And if you've ever driven around the LA area, you know, you know these animals have to cross those roads and all those freeways the 405 and the 101 and everything and so um we're we're doing work right now to get this major wildlife crossing built um and we're that's still in progress Uh, you know we're working on critically endangered red wolves with our state affiliate in north carolina we do a lot of work on waters so the great lakes puget sound chesapeake bay the gulf of mexico protecting these sort of like you know sort of big landscapes and, 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 you know, water ecosystems, which benefit a whole bunch of other species. And then at the same time, we also, and this is something kind of signature to the National Wildlife Federation, do a lot of work about getting people connected or reconnected to nature, kids in particular. So we are the people who publish Ranger Rick magazine. Um, you know, for over 50 years at this point. I think 54 years we're going on. Um, and, you know, today we have a whole suite of Ranger Rick magazines for different age groups. Um, we have Ranger Rick zoo books. And so um, we do a lot of work in that space, just kind of like getting kids, you know, teaching them about wildlife and nature and getting them inspired. Um, we have school programs, Eco Schools USA. Um, so there's a whole, we have a whole amazing new campaign called the Green Hour, this idea Of everybody needs an an apple a day keeps the doctor away, well, a green hour a day, you know, brings all the same kinds of health benefits and gets people connected to nature. And, you know, in that, in between all of that is this work that we do in this garden for wildlife space, where it's like focusing on wildlife conservation in the places where people live. So not often the wilderness, which is what, you know, traditional conservation does, but looking at our cities and our towns and our neighborhoods and trying to engage just the average American in wildlife conservation by taking those personal actions that really do add up into, you know, significant wildlife conservation if we all do. them. So just broad overview of the National Wildlife Federation. We do a lot of different stuff, um, but I like to point out the diversity of the things that we do because it's reflective of who we are as an organization. And also that there's so many touch points and so many ways that people can get engaged you know, like you, if, yeah, you know, if you're an activist, like get involved in our, in our policy work. If you are a school teacher or a parent or grandparent, you know, get involved in our Eco Schools USA program, right? And everything in between.
1: So if I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds like you found a lot of common ground with all of these different groups.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so you can imagine the challenges, right? Especially in, in where we find ourselves in this country today, yeah. you know, with the, the just sort of the deep political divides that we're experiencing. And, um, you know, it's something that we have always been committed to from, again, the very beginning of the National Wildlife Federation. You know, we were formed by um, by a gentleman named Ding Darling, who was a political cartoonist, believe it or not. And um, this was back in the 30s. and And, you know, to set the stage, this was sort of, you know the, the the coming off of you know the industrial revolution from the the, the previous century and and kind of the, the just sort of the the evolution of our economies and hunting and fishing and forestry. None of this stuff was regulated, right? And so it, it was just you know animals were disappearing, birds were getting killed for ladies' hats for fashion. You know, forests were being clear cut, and there was no oversight. And so, ding, darling basically, you know, put out a call for any organization across America to come together um, to this 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 convention and where they were going to talk about how to turn it around for America's wildlife and wild places. And the people that showed up to that very first you know event were again the, the hunting and fishing groups who were seeing their 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 hobby, their sport, their livelihood, their food source go away. Um, but it was also the, the burgeoning birding movement, you know, people who liked watching birds and taking pictures of birds and painting birds, you know, and um, it was people who, the, you know, sort of the early kind of like outdoor sports people, you know, the the, the, the people who like to go hiking and camping all came together and even some of the people that were the very, very early stage of this whole idea of gardening for wildlife, um, you know, and so it's kind of neat to think about that all of these people that you know maybe don't don't agree on a lot of other things but you know, we it's 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 sort of it's part of our culture and, and our and our values to to try to you know focus on the shared value of wildlife conservation. And you know, we don't always agree on everything internally across the National Wildlife Federation family, and that's okay. Um, but but when we do and when we can, again, it can be a very powerful thing. Um, you know, this sort of nonpartisan part of our culture where you know, certain groups may may have sway on one side of the political spectrum, other groups might have it on the other side, but the National Wildlife Federation oftentimes can be bringing those, those, those sort of both sides of views and reach across both sides of the aisle. And, you know, if you're familiar with how DC works, that's rare, and it can also be pretty powerful.
1: Yeah, you guys are a great convener of, of all the parties. Um, So I apologize. I did not introduce our other uh, hosts today. We have our two regulars, Jen and Chris, and we also have our uh, special guest, Michelle, who is actually the one that suggested you be on the show, David. So I'm going to let these ladies kind of take over and ask some of the questions they have, because I know they want to get in here too.
2: Sure. Yes. Hi, everyone.
1: (laughs) Hey,
3: Um, well, I'll jump in. Uh, I know because you started talking about species that are starting to go extinct. And so maybe can you just talk to maybe some of the listeners that aren't familiar with um, how ecosystems work and the importance of the survival and evolution of all species?
2: Well, sure, that, um, those are big questions, but I'll try to summarize. I mean, ecosystems are just, um, you know, the, the ecology is the relationship between living things and each other their and their environment right and so an ecosystem essentially is this this sort of um system in which all of the plants and the animals and all of the other organisms are kind of you know surviving and thriving in some you know in in sort of a a natural balance and they're impacted by the weather and the climate and the water resources and, and all of that kind of thing and there's many different kinds of ecosystems all around the earth you know, there's desert ecosystems and there's forest ecosystems and there's marine ecosystems and there are urban ecosystems, you know, kind of created and defined by us. Right. And so, you know, the, the 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 general idea is that we human beings, because we're so numerous and, you know, through our technology and things, is that, you know, we exert an enormous, enormous influence on the natural ecosystems on this planet and the unfortunate reality is that oftentimes that's a negative, you know, a negative impact, you know, where the things that we are doing are causing other species to, you know, to, to decline and essentially skewing these ecosystems that evolved to, you know, form kind of a balance and an equilibrium that are very stable, you know, over the course of hundreds of thousands and millions of years, you know, we human beings arrived on the scene in the you know the, the the 11th hour like you know the 58th second of the 11th hour of sort of the history of life on this planet and you know in just the last 150 years with our ability to really travel around the globe and again industrializing and and discovering fossil fuels for example we have like radically radically altered the ecosystems on this planet and you know for a lot of species that that's not good news Um, For some species that are adaptable and generalist like us, it's great news, you know, pigeons, rats, cockroaches, but for a lot of species, the majority of species, they're just, you know, they're not, they can't, you know, they're not equipped to deal with the, that rapid change. Now, again, to any one of us, you know, who lives, you know, you know, maybe a hundred years if you're lucky, right? I mean, a hundred years is a long time, but in, in the, the, in evolutionary ecological time that's that's literally nothing. So, you know, if you look at just the last 500 years, right? Let's even go out that far. Like that's just like a blip in time in terms of a species ability to evolve and adapt to new conditions. So when we human beings in that time frame have spread ourselves around the globe, you know, there's how many billion of us today, you know, sucking up all the resources, again, burning fossil fuels, putting pollutants into our atmosphere, causing climate change deforesting the planet you know the list goes on and on and on so as a result we are looking at you know a major extinction event right now um, on this planet and this one unlike previous ones and you know extinction is normal and natural and these extinction events do happen this one happens to be pretty much solely caused by us right so the dinosaurs came and went you know there have been several other of these in, in past history but um so you know, the, the reality is, is that globally today, we've got like something like over a million species that are endangered with extinction. But what a lot of people don't know, and a lot of wildlife conservation, I feel, you know, again, is focused kind of like on those faraway places, the rainforest and, you know, save the whales or, you know, pandas are disappearing. But it's happening right here in the U.S. too. You know, in North America, there's 12,000 species that are declining, that are in need of conservation help, that are not getting it. That's one third of our wildlife species right here in America are at increased risk of extinction in probably the coming decades, right? Most people have no, they don't know about that because no one's really talking about it. That is where that Recovering America's Wildlife Act comes in because it's those twelve thousand species that are the focus of, you know, if that legislation gets passed. And by the way, it passed the House. It's in the Senate right now, Um, so hopefully, fingers crossed, that's going to pass, and then we'll have. There's a lot more resources to do this conservation work, but at any rate, you know it's it's real, right? I mean, a couple year year or two ago, major study came out looking at the North American bird population, which has declined by like almost a third. There's like three billion less birds in North America today than there were in 1970. Uh, out of the entire population across species, the monarch butterfly, you know, iconic butterfly, you know, probably one of the first insects that we learn as a kid. You know, those big orange and black butterflies and you know, the cool striped caterpillars, they're disappearing literally right before our eyes. The eastern population east of the Rockies, um, you know, fluctuates from year to year, but they're anywhere from like 70% to 90% down from their population highs in the 90s. And the western population of monarchs west of the Rockies, there's less than 1% of them left. And that's, you know, the numbers of the their populations just came out a couple months ago 3 months ago so um you know bees are disappearing right and i'm not talking about the honeybee which is the species that kind of hogs all the attention for bee decline which you know here in america are essentially a domesticated species they're not even wildlife the honeybee at the same time we have 4000 species of bees that are native to north america again that most people don't know anything about don't even know that they exist and most of them are completely unlike honeybees right so they don't form hives they don't have queens, they don't make honey, they really don't sting. You know, all the things we think of as bees, uh, bee characteristics, um, don't really apply to most of these native bees. And some of them are going extinct. Like the rusty patch bumblebee is has the dubious distinction of being the very first bee species to be listed as endangered in North America. So that's the gloom and doom part. <laughs> and I try not to focus on that, but I think it's important to talk about because it's real and it's happening and we're causing it um, and I feel like you know people should know that but I also don't want to stop there you know too often the the that's where what conservation does right we think the facts people just care about the facts and the data and the stats and we could just tell people that and it will fix the problem because then oh they care so much they're going to do something about it that unfortunately is not how it always works and so one of the things that we try to do across the board at the National Wildlife Federation, but for, for me in particular, I always wanna help people see you know real solutions and action opportunities and meet people where they are with their interests and kind of what they're already doing. And that is where wh- one of the reasons why I continue to do a lot of work in this sort of garden for wildlife space, because the whole concept there is like the epitome of that old phrase, think globally, act locally. Um, It's this idea of saving wildlife by small actions that we do literally right outside our door. And it's not the only thing that we need to do, but it's one thing that we can do. And it's something that's personal, that you can see the benefit of and see the result of. Like, when you plant the milkweed for the monarch butterfly to lay its eggs on, and you go outside and you find a a monarch caterpillar on it, I mean, holy wow, like that is like a life-changing experience for people, and it gets them so inspired, and they want to do more. So So that's a big, long answer to a a very big question, but hopefully I answered it.
3: Yes. I mean, we kind of touched on some of my follow-up questions, which was about climate change and how it's affecting wildlife, and then the sixth extinction event being caused by humans. So is there anything else you want to like touch on on those specific topics, or do you just want to move forward?
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess uh, just to say that um, it doesn't I mean we human beings are part of the natural world you know we we're we're part of this planet and so in some ways you can think of everything that we've done to change the quote unquote natural world to suit our needs it's just part of the natural process right and all species impact the other species around them it's just that in most cases those species have again in their in their ecosystems have been doing this for so many hundreds of thousands or millions of years that they've reached this kind of equilibrium and this balance. So there's not one any one species that kind of dominates and wipes all the other species out. And so that's kind of what we're looking at here. And, you know, climate change, the, the, there's natural climate change that occurs on this planet. The climate change that we're experiencing now is very clearly the result of our specific actions to alter our atmosphere. And it's connected to our use of fossil fuels. Coupled with deforestation, um, and you know, it's like putting, it's like putting the 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 pollutants into into the atmosphere in the air, and then taking away the very things that would help help clean that pollution up, you know, by cutting down all the trees. So, um, so at any rate, you know, climate change is real; it's happening. You know, that that's just a flat out reality, um, and it's being caused by us, and this time around. So, um, but again, like we can change that. We can make you know, personal decisions, but even more importantly, these larger systemic changes that need to happen. And that's where, again, advocacy and policy comes in. Um, and so, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of work to do, and it can be very depressing, frankly. But you know what? I wake up every day and I just, you know, I think about the wonders of this planet. And, and I know that we're not going to save every species, right? And I know that we're probably not going to turn climate change around in my lifetime, but that doesn't mean it's not worth fighting for and doing the work and getting out there in the trenches every single day.
3: Yeah. It can get tiring though sometimes, right? Like you get kind of burnt out and (laughs) you need to recharge. So that's kind of my next just personal question. Like what do you do personally to like reinvigorate your spirits when you're feeling low? And then on a positive side of things, like what are some of the things we could start doing to review the reverse these trends of um, the species decline?
2: Yeah, so you know one of the things that I think is a positive that has come out of this this entire just bizarre, strange crazy last year um, where the the pandemic the COVID-19 pandemic really just you know completely changed everything. I think one positive thing that came out of that, is that so? So much attention is being paid to um, self-care and what that means, and and taking that 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 just that breath that you sometimes need. I, I'm seeing it definitely at the National Wildlife Federation. This sort of community of support, and you know, whereas before we were just always like on like running the rat race and just you know burning ourselves out, and now I'm seeing a lot more compassion. Amongst my colleagues, um, you know both in in NWF and across conservation in general, um, and just from talking to you know friends and family, I, I think that's happening everywhere. And so that that that's something that I, I guess like the very first thing is just being mindful that we need to take those breaks sometimes. Right. And we need to practice self-care if we're going to be effective at doing our job, whatever that is. In my case, it's saving the world. Right. So, you know, like you just have to do that. And so to be more specific with me, I mean, yes, I'm like, everybody else that works in in wildlife conservation I love nature and outdoors so like yeah like I like to go hiking and you know I'm I'm a wildlife gardener right so I love getting my fingers in the dirt I you know I have pets I love taking my dog you know all that kind of stuff but I also have found something really important and that is to have hobbies and interests outside of like your work career and your work passions so for me I'm not just a nature geek i'm like a you know regular run-of-the-mill geek so like i read comic books i'm a huge star wars fan i don't know if you can see that artwork behind me but i'm like a rabid fan of the comic book series ElfQuest. i was wondering and, what
1: that was that's pretty cool yeah looking. it's
2: a little bit hard to see <laughs> but it's like like i've been reading ElfQuest since i was 10 years old it's a you know sort of epic fantasy series um and I, like, am super active in the fandom. I, you know, help manage all the social media, and I, I, you know, help manage the ElfQuest website, and I host a podcast called The ElfQuest Show. Like, to me, that stuff that I do outside of my world of conservation, and it takes me out of that sort of direness, and it just gives me another outlet to f- just shift my brain a little bit, you know? Um, so I think that's really important. I mean, not that, every- that, that everybody has to do that, but just, like, Being able to take a break from whatever it is that your work is, especially if you work in a cause-related field where it's just, let's face it, a challenge, right? And you're not going to win every battle. And there's probably, that probably applies to a lot of things, not just, you know, wildlife conservation or nonprofits or cause related work, you know, I'm thinking healthcare, for example, but, you know, so anyway, that for me is something that I have found to be hugely effective because I can just step away and go into my, my geeks worlds and spaces and, and, um, and then come back, like starting fresh with my wildlife conservation stuff.
1: Finding balance.
3: (laughs) Chris, Chris has some questions for you now. So I'm going to pass the baton.
2: Okay.
4: Um, so a uh, lone non-U.S. resident. I don't know who Rick, uh, Ranger Rick is, but he sounds like a very cool dude. Um, <laughs> so when you're out and about doing these um, uh Talks and on te- uh, you know the talk shows and everything. What's the response? Do you get an energy from people? How do they come up and talk to you about things? Is it a hopeful energy? Is it people worried? Um, what do you? What is the general consensus? Do you think
2: it's it's all of the above? Um, and you know, I have the good fortune of of of, of having a lot of my my media appearances and my my talks and other public appearances be talking about some of this sort of joyous, positive things. Um, you know, I do a lot of, a lot of my TV appearances are, um, are with ambassador animals that we kind of bring and, and like showcase to help get people inspired and be like, look at how cool this animal is, you know, like it's wild kin are disappearing. Like, let's, let's do something about it, you know? Um, so that's always like a fun and, you know, generally feel good kind of thing and you know the, again the garden for wildlife stuff that i'm very active with and, you know again that's all about making a very positive you know simple thing that we can all do and so um as far as the response goes i mean who doesn't love animals right i mean most people respond immediately with a smile i mean you guys just did right like when i when i just said animals everybody smiled right so imagine if i had you know just like a really cool animal with me right now um and and it just, it's powerful when people can see the real, the real animals, um, that represent their, their species in the wild and that kind of thing. And with the garden for wildlife stuff, again, people are looking to do something that makes a difference. And when you can share with them, the, not only the information, but also your passion about it. And to me, like that is completely fueled by my, by my nerdiness about this stuff. Cause I just get so into it and I get so excited. And I think that becomes, um, you know it's it's kind of uh it, it, it's contagious if you will right and so absolutely a hundred percent i completely it's like it's like a like a a tube of energy coming into me when when I get feedback after one of my talks and people respond positively which often happens you know and it is like the best feeling in the world i've been super busy because because may every year is garden for wildlife month the national wildlife federation has designated it and so we do a lot of promotion of this this work that we do uh, which goes on year-round but so I've been like literally every day doing like one or two live stream appearances and I have a whole talk that I give called attracting birds butterflies and other backyard wildlife. I have another one called um, saving pollinators, one garden at a time. I just created a new one all about sort of organic gardening and what that means and how that impacts wildlife. And so I'm just going like nonstop giving these talks. and with the live streams, it's great because there's Q&A opportunities. And then a lot of them are like live streaming to Facebook. So after I get off, like I immediately go and I start reading the comments and, you know, I'm engaging with people there. And it's just so nice when people recognize your work and your passion and, and say, thank you. And, and they tell you that, oh my gosh, like I I learned so, so much from you and I really want to go out and do it like that to me like that makes up for all of the depressing stuff that happens. Right. And it makes up for, you know, working for a nonprofit organization, you know, like none of us are getting rich doing this work. Right. So, so, but I don't care about that. Right. Like helping people and and helping people help wildlife. I mean, that's so special. It's so much like who, who so few of us can can say that we do that for a living. Right. So I always want to center on that and, without a doubt, I get the biggest boost in charge. Like after this call or after we're done here, like I'm going to go, I'm going to like need to like pour a cocktail and like relax a little bit because I'm going to be so energized just from talking to you guys.
1: You're getting all of us energized too. So you're like, you said, your enthusiasm is contagious. It
4: is. That's so awesome. I have a bee tattoo.
2: Oh, I love it. Love it.
4: Uh, And then I'm covered in flowers and birds and butterflies and stuff, but I, I, we just moved. We have a nice old kind of big lot where we are and I'm very excited to have shrubbery and flowers and everything that brings bees and butterflies. Um we have very fat squirrels here so maybe not attracting them so much, but um good luck. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're so fat. They look like small cats. Um what would you say to somebody like me who is I I know I know things, but I really don't. Where would you start? where would you start? So it's not so overwhelming. Um, just one plant would like a small, like, where would you start if you were at the beginning of it all?
2: Yeah. So fantastic question. Um, so that is a big, um, barrier to getting people to, you know, think about, oh, planting a quote unquote wildlife habitat garden. Like, oh my gosh, that's so intimidating. What is, what is that? What do I have to plant? Where do I find, like, so I always tell people like, first, just take a deep breath there's no one way to do this, right? So you're doing it because again, you want to make a difference. You want to see some more of these cool, you know, butterflies, bees, whatever. So, you know, the first step obviously is just you know, doing some reading, right? And that's why I wrote my book. So that is a like a, to be very shamelessly, you know, self-promotional, you know, you buy my book. It's meant for, you know, for people who who have never done this before, to get the basic core ideas of like, what, what is wildlife habitat and how does that apply to my yard or my garden space, right? And, you know, it's based on every chapter, each of the different elements of habitat. I've got projects step-by-step, I've got plant lists, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, read, go online, the National Wildlife Federation's Garden for Wildlife website, you know, tons of information that will just kind of help give you the baseline kind of idea of what this means right but after that it's like the, the really what it boils down to and I should I should have explained this at the beginning because every time I say garden for wildlife I'm sure there's people out there listening being like wait I just don't get it don't we want to get rid of the wildlife in the garden aren't the wildlife gonna destroy my garden and not really no um, and but here's why a wildlife conservation organization like the National Wildlife Federation has a garden program it's because plants are the foundation of habitat for all wildlife. They're the bottom of the food web, right? They're the primary producers. They absorb the sun and the water and they make, they photosynthesize and they produce things like berries, seeds, nuts, um, cones, which have seeds in them, nectar, pollen. These are all food sources at the base of that food web that all bunches of animals need and they feed on and they need it to survive, right? And then those animals become meals for the next animals up on and so on and so forth. So you can't have good healthy wildlife populations unless you have good plant communities. And not all plants are are, are equally valuable. So this is this idea of native plants, like working in your in your landscape, you know, which could be You know, an acre of land, or it could be containers on your urban balcony, right? Or it could be like a hundred-acre farm, right? Doesn't matter. The core idea is plant the things that are kind of indigenous to your area, the native species that the wildlife co-evolved with, and whose life cycles and needs are intertwined. You know, and so if you just take any old random garden plant that you know here, well, you know for for me i live in outside of new york city in new jersey right so if i'm planting something that you know that horticulture has discovered this amazing beautiful plant you know somewhere in hungary and it's now you know mass produced and it's a common garden plant well it's beautiful and it could be functional in the landscape but it has no ecological connections to any of the wildlife here you know none of the the butterflies can lay their eggs on it the pollen isn't useful to the 25% of our native bees that are pollen specialists who can only survive In the presence of these specific indigenous native plants right and so that's the that you know the the simple place to start and why a wildlife conservation group has a garden program is that it's all about planting those native plant species as much as we can you know and 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 the more we do that the more we're going to restore that that wildlife habitat that again the bees the birds the butterflies all the other insects the songbirds that eat those um, all of those insects 96 percent of our backyard bird species, upland terrestrial birds, so like not seabirds or whatever, 96% of them feed their babies a diet exclusively of invertebrates, mostly caterpillars, mostly of moths, right, so if we take away all the plants that the butterflies and moths need to lay their eggs, what are the birds going to eat, and then we, and then we find out that there's 3 billion less birds, right, it's all connected, because we got rid of all those plants, so my advice for people who want to start is, you know, do a little bit of reading, kind of learn a little bit more about this, but um, start small. The number one thing that you can do is give up a little bit of your lawn and plant a garden bed with some native wildflowers or plant an oak tree. Oak trees, the the, the genus Quercus, um, which, you know, is the, that, the genus of oak, oaks. Collectively, they serve as the caterpillar host plant for 557 species of butterflies and moths. So, you know, any one oak tree species isn't going to support every all 557, but it might support a few dozen, right? So that's a powerful thing that you can do. Plant an oak tree. You'll support all of those butterflies and moths with their caterpillars. You'll feed the birds. You'll give the birds nesting places. The acorns will be a food source, right? So it can be as simple as that. Just one plant, right? That's how you start. And then what I always say is that one of the, the the beautiful things about this idea of gardening for wildlife and gardening in general is that it's never done and that's a good thing because if you enjoy it you constantly want to be out there every weekend tinkering and transplanting this and oh my gosh that new plant that you know hasn't been available and, and you know that kind of thing so um but don't feel like you have to you know bulldoze your entire existing landscape and that you have to spend a ton of money and that you have to you know be a a botanist you know just start small and focus on those native plants find a local native plant nursery um just you know google's your friend every state and and you know every country um are you in canada okay yeah so i'm quite certain that there are canadian um native plant groups that you could contact Um, the national wildlife federation actually just like two weeks ago launched our own native plant, um, a curated line of native plants that we picked speci- specifically because they support the most numbers of those native bees, butterflies, and the birds that feed on them um, that will basically deliver right to your door. Their plant collections, you, know, you can get um, six packs or 12 packs. They come in recycled packaging so it's sustainable, free shipping, and we designed this specifically for folks maybe like yourself who weren't maybe quite sure where to start, and they didn't have like sort of the deep knowledge of the the botany and all the right? And so, like, you can just, you can just, we did all the work for you. We have sample garden plans in there that come with it, and a whole bunch of other supplementary info that'll teach you how to do it. Um, right now, it's only focused on 20 states, um, so it's not, I, I don't know what would happen if you tried to order it in Canada. That would be an interesting test, but um, the plant material is native uh- to- the northern tier of the US so the upper northeast upper Midwest and kind of down down as far south as Virginia so sort of like the mid-Atlantic upper south Um, and obviously we're going to expand it we just have to when you're working with native plant material you have to be growing the right you know species for the right region so but that's something for anybody else listening who might be in a similar boat to you Chris that is just starting out and maybe you know, just wants to get some plants in the ground and see what happens. um You can check that out. That the website for that is gardenforwildlife.org.
4: I like the idea of sample garden plans um, because I I live in Southern Ontario, so it's sort of the same. I think it's a zone four that I live in, which is is that what New Jersey is? Is that sort of?
2: Yeah, we're we're like in the zone zone six and seven depending oh, on where you are.
4: A little warmer. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, like garden plans that'd be amazing because it's like foolproof. I can just plant yeah. stuff. Yeah, that's so awesome. And I also watched- That's Ab-
2: exactly the idea. So so yeah, I mean, again, don't be intimidated. Um, just, I would make it a goal for this year to just plant some native plants and then see what happens.
4: Yeah, I have a big yard and I'm excited. So, um, but I think Michelle's got some questions waiting for you, so. Thanks.
1: Yeah,
0: I wanted to ask you talked about the gardening for wildlife and planting native plants. Could you maybe mention one or two other things that people could do to garden for wildlife?
2: Absolutely. So the core really is is the plants. They're going to provide three of the four habitat components that all wildlife need. So they're going to provide food, they're going to provide cover, places to hide, get out of the weather, hide from predators, and they're going to provide places to raise young, you know, nesting spots, those caterpillar host plants. So they're the core. But um, the fourth component is water. So that's something that you 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 want to think about providing in some way, shape, or form. You know, some people put in big, fancy water gardens, and that's great. But all you really need is to like maybe put out a birdbath. You know, any kind of shallow dish, you know, one to three inches deep. You can put it on a pedestal, hang it from a branch. I've seen models that, you know, will attach to the side of a deck. Um, you can even just put it on the ground and animals, you know, birds will use it, but animals that can't fly or climb would be able to use it as well. So that's a very simple thing, and you just empty it out every day or two, Put fill it with fresh water. No mosquitoes will breed in it then. Mosquitoes take you know five to seven days to go through their aquatic larval phase. So plant natives, add a water source, and don't use pesticides. That's a pretty big one. Um, and you know, I, like I was just saying, I just put together this talk on, on quote unquote organic gardening. And um, really tried to unpack, like, what is a pesticide? What is a pest? You know, what is a chemical? I mean, everything's a chemical, right? And so a lot of this stuff has gotten so polarized, and so black and white, and and frankly, kind of dumbed down a little bit. And so the reality, like with most things, is that the answer is a little bit gray, and it's a little bit more nuanced, right? So you know, pesticides are tools, right, and they give us some good things. They help keep disease vectors down. We use them sometimes to help protect endangered species, but in a home and garden scenario, in my opinion anyway, we we really don't need to be using pesticides, whether they're insecticides to kill insects or whether they're herbicides to kill, you know, plants. Rodenticides are hugely impactful to non-target species, so people, you know, they see a mouse and they freak out and they put out you know, poison and those rodents eat that poison and it doesn't kill them immediately. They basically walk around half dead for you know, days, even up to you know, a week or two, and they're easy targets for predators. So what ends up happening with the rodenticides is that they build up in the ecosystem and they poison hawks and owls and foxes, even mountain lions. And so they have this huge negative non-target species impact and there are other solutions to all of those issues. You know, there's a lot of again, kind of organic gardening techniques for like vegetable gardens. You know, handpicking, using things that have the least um, toxicity and the least persistence in the environment. So, you know, using soap and water can actually kill a lot of. You know crop pests you know they'll kill aphids and things like that so do that instead of uh, pulling out like the nuclear level pesticides right that are going to maybe persist in the environment and maybe even cause human health concerns and things like that so plant natives add a water source reduce your lawn you know minimize it as much as you can and don't spray pesticides those are just you know i gave you five four
1: (laughs) i appreciate
0: that I, i um I'm a big gardener so i could talk to you for a long time about the pests and the you know pesticides and and all of that i think that's really interesting
2: yeah and you know just just to 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 prove that i kind of walked the talk a little bit but what i was just saying about this pesticides you know being um there, there's it's not just a black and white issue so i happen to I, I just moved to this property last year and one of the things that sold us on this house was this beautiful big ash tree. It's a just massive tree sitting right off of like our patio. It's like a focal point in the yard. It just, right? Well, there's this invasive non-native beetle called the emerald ash borer that is sweeping through America. And um, I'd never dealt with it before. So I didn't, you know, I was like, oh, ash tree, like, you know, wonder how much of a concern. Well, turns out that it's like a major concern here. And this tree will be dead within four to five years. And it's gonna cost thousands and thousands of dollars to remove it. It's so close to my house that it's definitely gonna be you know, sort of a hazard as it begins to, you know. So my options are, you know, come up with like $8,000 to get it removed. Don't do anything and let it decline and maybe fall on my house or I could treat it. And there are, you know, systemic pesticides which are better than spray pesticides. You know, they go into the tree. So it's only insects that try to eat the tree that will be impacted by them but you know I don't want to do that but I'm going to do it because I feel like you know that's the option that I have available to me now I have another ash tree on my property that's in the back and I'm not treating that in fact I'm going to take it down to about 15 feet of a trunk and let that dead trunk stand there which is going to be awesome wildlife habitat because the woodpeckers are going to start drilling in it to get at the beetle larva that's in there. And eventually there'll be nesting cavities for the woodpeckers and other birds. Um, you know, all sorts of critters will be able to use that. So, you know, I feel like don't let perfection be the enemy of something really awesome. And just be wary of of, of purists, I suppose. And that, you know, on any, any side of any spectrum, right? Because I just feel like, Yeah, I've been around. I've been in this career professionally for you know 25 years. I'm working my way into middle age here, and I just feel like you know the too often we 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 kind of silence each other by by polarizing and shifting all the way to these far you know extremes. And sometimes you need to do that, right? Sometimes that's how change happens and revolution and all that good stuff. But you know, oftentimes I feel like be cautious about anything that's too absolute. Um, what is it, only the Sith deal in absolutes. So don't be a Sith.
1: (laughs) Although Yoda did say do or do not, there is no try. So (laughs) (laughs) was he a Sith? (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, I I think that's an important point. I was going to say, you know, a lot of times gardeners or people who want to get into gardening want to remove all the bugs or make the plants perfect and and everything has to be like in its own place and and once you start gardening you realize like no things are messy and things are going to grow in ways that you don't expect and sometimes you need the bugs or you just got to share the space with the bugs i mean you you plant one for you one for you know the, the critters or whatever, um, and and I think that's a good lesson to learn because because when I started gardening, I got a little frustrated with that. And Michelle has been my gardening mentor in a lot of ways. But um, yeah, there's always something to deal with. But you've just got to learn that balance, I guess.
2: Yeah, I think balance is kind of the key, right? That's that's the the one word that kind of sums up everything I was just saying. I think like, and that goes for ecosystems. Like ecosystems are healthy and resilient when they have that sort of natural sense of balance. It's when things get out of balance when something changes and, you know, certain organisms can then begin exploiting it to the detriment of others. Right. That's when we destabilize our ecosystems. And again, unfortunately that's largely been the effect of all the changes that we human beings have, have made on the planet. And so, but again, it doesn't have to be that way. And we can make choices that kind of reverse that or at least mitigate it. And, and, you know, on a very simple, basic Personal action level—that's what I love about the whole garden for wildlife concept. Because, like I said, it really does work. And when you see it work, it's just so—it's—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, 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 it's one of those things that just kind of completely changes the game. When you know, like I said, you plant the caterpillar host plant, and the, you find the caterpillar, or the first time you discover a bird nesting in your yard you know, or in the, even like the street tree outside of, you know, if you live in the city or whatever, like, because maybe you planted something that attracted it. So, um, and those, going back to just the whole self-care thing too, um, I think that's connected there because it's okay to feel joy, you know, and it's okay to give yourself permission to to feel good about something. And those kinds of experiences You know, I don't know much about, you know, social marketing or behavior change, but the little bit that I do know, you know, I, we know that just preaching at people doesn't work, right? We talked about that a little bit at the very beginning, but if you can help people have an experience that is positive and actually helps wildlife, they're going to remember it and they're going to get inspired to do more. And that's where I like to stay. I feel like that's my lane in all of this. Um, you know, I, I mentioned at the very beginning, I have a degree in political science, I originally thought I was going to become, you know, get involved in advocacy. And as I went through college, you know, doing political science stuff and doing internships with Sierra Club and getting in the trenches with, you know, the, the policy wonks and the advocates and all of that, I realized that I was terrible at it. And I did not enjoy it. And it burned me out. It like sucked the life out of my soul, having to constantly be adversarial and fight. And it was just like, I I guess I was lucky in that I realized that very early. And I was like, well, I'm not doing this. And I didn't know what to do. So I ended up getting a, a seasonal position at a nature center as a summer camp naturalist. And so my job was to take packs of seven and eight year old kids and teach them about nature. Um, This is in Georgia, outside of Atlanta. And there happened to be a wildlife hospital on the grounds of the Nature Center. And there were a lot of animal ambassadors that were non-releasable animals that, you know, were too injured to survive. And so, you know, we would work with them and use them in education um, programs. And that's how I got trained how to handle wildlife. And so what I learned from that experience after I was like, well, I just wasted all my parents' money. I'm not going to do this thing that I thought I was going to do. I was like, wait a second. This is what I'm good at. I'm good about being a nature geek and getting to share all of my knowledge about animals and ecosystems with other people and doing it in a way that gets them excited, whether they're seven-year-old kids or you know, 75-year-old grandmas, right? And so again, I've been very blessed that I've been able to kind of somehow navigate this, this crazy career that I've, that I've had to be able to, to focus on that and do what I love and focus on that, you know, helping people in the positive sense.
1: Did you have any other questions, ladies? Comments? Thoughts? (laughs) My comment
3: is that I absolutely adore you. (laughs) And I feel like you're the, like, male version of Jennifer Hetzel. Like, when you were geeking out about, like, Star Wars and all the anime stuff, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's Jennifer Hetzel. (laughs) She's your, like, female counterpart. Anyways. (laughs) Anyways, <laughs> yeah, well, I, just I, that in
2: there. I, I appreciate that. And I mean, it's it, if it's not obvious, I love all this stuff, you know, and and I am definitely a proponent of like embrace your childish childhood, childish joy, you know, like when I was younger, like most of us, we were we wanted to be cool and you know, all that. and I'm just like, I'm so over that. I'm so like, seriously, like, it's overrated. I, like, I read elf comics, you know, I. I, you know, I, I, I want to run around with the butterflies and like, I don't care what you think, you know, I'm going to do what makes me happy and fills me with joy. And if I can do it in a way that gets other people excited and happy too, like even better. So it's sort of embrace, you know, f- fly your freak flag, embrace your inner child. All of that stuff is I'm like a thousand percent. That's my, my, that's the beat of the drum that I, you know, march to. So.
1: Definitely. I- I'm a big proponent of you can be a geek about anything, whether it's Traditional, you know, sci fi or nature or cooking or reading or whatever it is you like to do. You can be a nature geek or any kind of geek you want. So, hey, equal opportunity. <laughs> um, well, I just have, I guess, one more question. We've kind of covered some of this, um, but, you know, a lot of people don't think wildlife conservation matters because it doesn't affect humans directly, quote unquote. Um, or they don't see the effects. Um, so, so, obviously, this is a misconception that is, is detrimental not only to nature, but to humans in the long run. Um, so, so, why is this kind of a false assumption that people have? How, how are we connected to nature? If nature is, you know, suffering, how do we suffer?
2: Yeah. So, again, another really big question. So, I'll do my best to give a succinct answer, which I'm not very good at if you haven't noticed. Um, <laughs> is, I mean, it's just, it, it is, it's a complete, um misconception that you know what like wildlife and nature don't impact us they do whether or not you know it or not right so um, you know there's the very easy examples of like all of the different medicines that we've developed from nature from plants and even from animals um, and 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 things like that there's all of our food you know where do you think food comes from it's plants and animals right like if those things didn't exist and we didn't have say for example Genetic diversity within animal populations, we wouldn't have been able to domesticate a lot of the species that we eat today or that we use you know in some way shape or form to benefit us right so we are all connected, and let's just talk about pollinators for an example um the you know we were talking about the the all the bees out there, right bees are pollinating the all of the flowering plants out there, right, and those flowering plants once they are pollinated by the bees. And other pollinators, but bees are the most important pollinators because of their numbers and diversity. And just they have a very a much more tight coevolution than some of the other pollinators do with plants. What would all those other animals be eating if the if the pollinators were not out there pollinating the wild plants? You know, I mean, and, and forget the animals for a second. How would the plants reproduce? How would they set fertile seeds if the pollinators weren't pollinating? Right. Now, certainly there are wind pollinated plant species. It's you know, I'm talking about the flowering plants, but you know, that's a a good chunk of the, the flora on this planet. So if the bees weren't there pollinating the and 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 forming, letting the plants form the seeds, the nuts, the berries, the fruit that are feeding all these other animals, then like ultimately the food, the whole entire food web that we rely on for survival collapses. One third of every bite of food that we eat is the result of animal pollinators. And it's not just like your you know, berries and tomatoes, it's things like chocolate. Um, it's things like um, like your, your margarita, right? That has tequila in it, which is, comes from agave, which is pollinated by bats. You know, like it's all connected, even if you don't know it. You know, if, if pollinators disappeared, literally that would be the equivalent of that meteor hitting that caused the extinction of the dinosaurs. If pollinators disappeared over the course of, you know, a few decades or even centuries, it would probably be decades or centuries until there would be like a 90% loss of life on this earth, including us. So, I mean, we are connected. It's just, it's silly to even contemplate that. But, you know, I get it. We human beings are not good at, um, we're much more reactionary. As a species, it's really hard for us to be thinking big picture and down the line. so if it's not right in our face and we don't see the one-to-one connection, it can be difficult and I get that. Um, but that's why we need to be teaching people and, and and showing people and trying to make those connections so that people really understand that we are a part of this planet we are part of nature, and we have a choice. We can either you know light the match and pour the gasoline on it, which is what we've been doing and pretty soon. We're going to burn up with it or we can be a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit more uh, empathetic in our choices and realize that we're part of a bigger ecosystem, whether we like it or not. And it's up to us to fix the problems because we cause most of them.
1: Yeah, I get really frustrated with the mindset. Um, Well, if it doesn't affect me, then it doesn't matter. Right. Like, like things have intrinsic value and we should care about how we affect the natural world just because there's other living beings that we're affecting and, and beautiful landscapes and and all of these things. So, um, the fact that we have to resort to the argument of, you know, this affects humans because X, Y, and Z kind of frustrates me, but I understand that's sometimes that's the messaging you have to use to get across to people. So,
2: yeah, no, I'm right there with you and, you know, but here's the thing. One of the biggest gifts that I have had in my career is actually having the opportunity to step out of wildlife conservation and step out of the science and nature world and that happened when I started doing TV stuff right and I and I got plucked from this you know many ways our our little bubble where we all speak the same language and especially DC-based, you know, DC, it's, you know, I lived in DC for 20 plus years, 27 years. uh, And, you know, like, it's just like a whole other entity, right? So suddenly I got pulled out of that world and put into the television world where the rules are different. They're like the rules of the real world, right? Where I had to go on television and and talk in a way that would actually work on television. And literally sometimes they almost had to get the stick and hit me because it was like, nope, that's too scientific, that's too wonky, you can't talk like that. And that was a gift to me because it made me realize that it doesn't matter what we think, right? And like in terms of what we, people need to know, right? What matters is, is whether or not our messages are getting across, right? And so it's that, again, that whole idea of kind of uh, social marketing, right? Like I'm interested in the end result, in the behavior change and making the difference. And if I am getting in my own way, because it pisses me off that people can't see the intrinsic value of nature, that's not helping nature, you know? So I got to get over myself and I will do what I need to do to shift that. And, and again, be, do what's effective at getting people to care. Um, and it's easier said than done, I know, but, but adapt your it's something I keep with me because um, it's, it's that important. You have to do that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think a lesson we've all had to learn over the years. We we get angry and we try to, you know, just throw facts at people and we're like, why don't you care? And yeah, that doesn't work all the time. So, yeah. um, well, anything else you ladies would like to discuss before we move on? All right. You've given us a lot to think about, David. So thank you for for sharing your experience and all of your knowledge and the great work that you do. Um, So what are some more resources you would share with our listeners? I know you mentioned your book, but um, feel free to plug that again and anything else that has been impactful for you.
2: Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that opportunity. I appreciate that. I guess first and foremost, I'd love it um, if everybody followed me on social media. I'm pretty much everywhere except TikTok. I've resisted TikTok. I don't know why. I feel like maybe I'm too old, but I'm on um Facebook, Naturalist David Mizajewski. I'm on Twitter, um, Instagram, LinkedIn if you're more on the professional side of things. I just well, I've had a YouTube channel for like a decade. And I've never done anything with it up until like a month ago. So I'm really focused right now on trying to create, like create my own content. Instead of waiting for TV networks to come and book me to come on and you know do stuff. I'm like, I want to just make my own stuff, so um, just have launched a whole bunch of you know new videos on there. So again, it's Naturalist David Mizajewski. I know it's tough to spell my name, but. Um yeah, if you can find me there, that would be wonderful. I'm definitely, especially on YouTube, looking to kind of build that channel. I've only got a couple hundred subscribers, so I would love it if everybody subscribed. So that's one thing. Um, Yeah, if you want to get my book, it's called Attracting Birds, Butterflies, and Other Backyard Wildlife, available from any bookseller. You know, ask your local bookshop. That's always best, you know, shop local, but, you know, you can get it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target. Um, You can get it directly from the National Wildlife Federation's shop site as well. And all of the sales go to support the National Wildlife Federation, a portion of the the royalties go to uh, directly to NWF to support our work. Um, and that, you know, that's it's it's a, it's a how to book. So it'll teach you again, just all the basics. And it's not like a textbook. It's hopefully inspiring. I got 200 plus amazing photos in there of all sorts of cool animals and plants. And um, and then I guess last just Go to the national wildlife federation's website it's nwf.org so national wildlife federation.org and you can go down all sorts of rabbit holes finding out about all the different work that we do and ways that you can get involved no matter what your proclivity is so like i said if you are an activist we got opportunities for you if you are a gardener and want to make a difference you know that's garden for wildlife you know parents you know again all these school programs and kid focused things and pretty much everything in between we have opportunities for you to get involved in our work and help support us, and leverage your own voice to make a difference for all the wildlife that need our help.
1: And is your book available in Canada? Or
2: I, I believe it, be it, it is. Yeah, and 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 I will say too, it's not. I, you know, I wrote it to be broad, right? So it's the core concepts. Um, And I do have plant lists, but they're sort of at that genus level. So like oak trees, like, like I was saying, you know, then you go find what, you know, what your nursery is carrying what oak species are native to your area, that kind of thing. So it is, you know, if you're in any part of the country, or Canada, um, you know, the US or Canada, um, I think it would be completely appropriate.
1: Awesome. So for our Canadian listeners, check it out. (laughs) Well, um, Let's go ahead and move on to our green life hacks, I guess. Um, David, would you like to go first?
2: Sure. I mean, I'm gonna be um, not very um, creative here, but the one that I picked was again, Garden for Wildlife. You know this is something super easy that we can all do that will you know is a way that we can you know sort of live more sustainably. And I've talked a lot about it already, but just the idea that um, our the way that most people in the u s and Canada, Um, garden or or treat our own piece of the earth is to have a lawn and you know maybe a handful of ornamental plants like shrubs and whatnot Um, and the reality is is that that looks green and natural but it does in most cases especially if they're not native and definitely for lawns it does not have that ecological connection so it might as well be plastic plants right so it really is true conservation to plant a wildlife habitat garden with native plants it begins to reweave that complex fabric of your local ecosystem, and when I do it and my neighbor does it, and you do it, suddenly we begin to rebuild that rich you know sort of tapestry that used to be there before we wiped it all out with pavement and pesticides and asphalt and you know the the cockroaches and and the rats right and so that is that's my my sort of what, green life hack is that what you guys call it
1: yeah life hack to life hack, live yeah. more sustainably yeah
2: yeah, to be sustainable
1: yeah. Yeah, those monocultures of lawns are not not great so (laughs) i agree with that one um chris what is your green life hack for the month
4: um so right now for this whole month of may um ray and i are doing a no buy month so outside of necessities and things for the kids like um quinn's going right through a growth spurt so he's going to need shoes and ray's birthday is coming up and it's mother's day um we're not buying anything. So it's harder than seems and a month is a long time. So I've, I put a little like legend on our calendar on the fridge um, and color coded it. So I circle every day, whether we bought something or whether we didn't with the specific color. So it's, that's helpful. So then you have like an actual visualization of um, your targets and the colors help because then it, it sort of challenges you. It's kind of what Sarah Wilson was saying um, when we had her on about um, just don't go to the shops. Um, but I find for me, that's that's a great concept, but I need like a visual representation. So I wrote it down, like I have it on my calendar and I it's on the fridge. so I see it every day. So that's what we're doing. So I can't buy your book this month, David. But <laughs> that's okay.
2: Month. You can buy it next month.
4: <laughs>
1: next month, I have. Um, hey, Mother's Day's coming up, like you said. Mother's so day. Ray... <laughs>
4: yeah yeah I'll just yell at him upstairs um so yeah so I encourage people to just take especially this messed up year that we're doing in Ontario we're on our third lockdown we still have a couple weeks um which is probably going to get extended um just you know we we don't need as much as we think we do and it's really easy especially now to just shop online because we can't go anywhere but just take a second and do i actually need it or am i just trying to am i bored go outside do your hour of green time outside but yeah definitely no buy months or no buy days if just a day you can do a day if you can do 24 hours without buying anything that you don't need that would be cool
1: that's a pretty cool exercise i need it's to harder try than that out. More. yeah <laughs> <laughs> like a full month jen what's your green life hack
3: yeah, so my friend bought this Lettuce Grow is the brand name, but it's like a hydroponic vertical planter for herbs or vegetables, or if you want to do, you know, natural plants for bees or butterflies. Um, so I've been researching those types of different planters right now. Um, so that's kind of the one I've landed on because she's been happy with it so far, Um because I live in a townhouse with no yard whatsoever. I only have my rooftop. So I'm, I'm looking at, you know, vertical garden options. So for those of you who don't have grass like me, (laughs) there's, you know, some vertical hydroponic, you know, it just helps maybe conserve water a little bit better than the soil would dry out like really quickly. It gets super hot here in San Antonio. So, but yeah, that's what I'm looking at. If anyone else, I know like, Michelle and Jennifer and you know everybody else on the call probably is better at plants and planters so if you guys have any other suggestions um, let me know but that's that's my advice to everyone out there
1: that's cool I haven't gotten into hydroponics yet but maybe someday (laughs) Add that to the very long list Michelle what's your green life hack for us My
0: kind of piggybacks off of David's, um, I picked the Certified Garden Checklist from the National Wildlife Foundation. Yay! I, um, it took me two years, I used that checklist, and it's not really that hard, I just made it more complicated than it needed to be. Um, But it was a great guide, and, you know, I got my kids involved, and it was, you know, you can print it out, and um, it's an educational opportunity to talk with my kids, you know, about what's on the checklist and why that's important. Um, And then you can get a really cute sign to put in your yard that says that your garden is a certified um, wildlife habitat, and I have it right out front, Um, and I love that. It makes me so happy to see it. And it's a good conversation starter with my neighbors, with anybody that comes by, and it's an opportunity to to share why that's important. So, you know, I I love that program. I'm so grateful that you guys do it. And um so and you can find the checklist on their website too.
2: Thank you for saying that. You have just validated so much that we we hope, you know, we think like, well, let's do this and and, and people, it will help people in this way. And you just like like all of our dreams just came true.
1: Oh. So we
2: we have that checklist. It's 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 the it's basically all the different ways you can provide food, water, cover, places to raise young, and sustainable gardening. That are those are the chapters in my book. It's all connected, right? The book is based on that checklist. And I just go into a deeper dive on each one of them. But we decided to make that checklist available like outside of the actual application for that exact reason. So people can kind of print it out and walk around their yard and be like oh yeah and and like the, the very fact that it's a checklist is we we did it that way because we realized that a lot of people probably already have some good stuff going on and they probably don't even know that this is wildlife habitat and so it helps i think you know with that and um the yard signs yes are um you know when you certify your garden space or your yard or your property whatever it is um you can get one of our yard signs and we've got a few different models, and you know we sell them that's again a way that we raise money to you know go right back into these programs but um but we have it because number one people like that recognition right they a lot of people like to be able to get that stamp of approval from a national conservation organization but honestly as as just as important is the you know by doing that, Michelle, you have really helped us in a huge way to spread the word you know there's only one of me there's only so many of these you know conversations that I can have but if all the people out there that are doing this certified and put the yard signs out they really do start conversations and I see these as I travel the country well when I did before the pandemic um, for all of my appearances and everything and again I get I it's like the biggest charge when I was just driving, you know, to the TV studio or whatever, and I see there is one of our certified signs, uh, you know, so thank you for doing that. I appreciate you highlighting that.
0: Yeah. My mom actually asked me for the link to do, do
1: her own, which is a big deal. If you, yeah, she yeah we'll see it really works.
2: It. I love it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Michelle has an amazing garden. So, um, I was really, she kind of got me into gardening and, and that's a pretty cool program that you guys have. When when I get back into gardening someday, I'm going to have to do that. So.
2: Well, Michelle, you'll have to, um, you know, find me on social media and send me some pics and, you know, maybe we'll, I don't know, we'll share your, your garden on the Garden for Wildlife Facebook page or something.
0: Ooh, that'd be exciting. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> We're still recovering from the freeze. so It'll probably be a couple of months before I send you anything. All right.
2: That's fine. I mean, you know. <laughs> Whenever, whenever you feel comfortable, I would love to showcase it. Yeah, thank you.
1: Well, my green life hack, um, kind of related to what we've been talking about, is to see if your local community has some kind of a master naturalist or master gardening program. Um, I know in Texas we we have that, and they're pretty much specific to your your local community or region, and and they really it's like a several month program um, where you kind of go once a week or once or twice a week to learn from experts who are also certified and learn about native plants and how to garden and things like that. So um, I would just suggest, you know, if you're interested in learning more about this stuff, um, to to check out those programs because it's local folks and then you have a community in your area you can reach out to. So that's my life hack. Um, So let's talk about where we can find you guys online. David, you want to give one more plug for where folks can find you?
2: If you um, if you can spell my name, it's Mizajewski, M-I-Z-E-J-E-W-S-K-I. M-I-Z-E-J-E-W-S-K-I. Um, search for me on all the socials. Um, I'm really active across the board, um, and I try to do slightly different content on all my different sites. So, um, would love it if you guys found me there and, and you know chatted and befriended and shared and all that good stuff.
1: Great, thank you, Chris. Where can we find you online?
4: go uh you can find me here on sustainably geeky on uh epically geeky and we are doing a show this saturday which is about um we're doing remake reboot or sequel so we're doing that um and then marginally geeky which we're reading matthew mcconaughey's green lights which is hilarious it's so oh my god it's so funny and he narrates it which is amazing if you're listening to it on audible and on creatively geeky and so there's David's Instagram right there. Follow you, you can't see it, can you see that? No, it's too bright. Follow you, you got another follower there, David. It looks, you do, you're busy on Instagram. <laughs> uh, and you can find me on Instagram at Rose
1: Hummingbird. Great. And Jen, I'm assuming we are still the exclusive access to you, correct? Yeah, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Michelle, do you have a page you'd like to share? I'm only on Facebook and I honestly don't
0: remember what my Facebook name is, but you can also find me in my garden. Um, that's about it.
1: <laughs> that's the best place to find you. Yeah, The,
2: the old school social network, right? Your yeah, community of the bees and the butterflies, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you can find me um, here, of course, on sustainably geeky. And Marginally Geeky, as Chris mentioned, uh, we are part of the Epically Geeky Network, so um, we have a lot of other shows if you're interested in learning about those. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hets Gonna Be Me. and um, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sustainably Geeky. We're also on um, all of the podcast channels and YouTube, so check us out um, if you would like to subscribe and rate us we would love that and send us your topic suggestions as well Um, that's all I have for the show you guys thank you so much David for being on and um, we will talk to you all soon